You are listening to the Anna Sabo Show, a podcast for Christian women, where we have conversations about God, gospel, and the matters of life. If you enjoy this episode, please write and post your podcast review today. And remember to share it on social media. Oh, by the way, the calm music I add to the end of each episode is for your thinking pleasure. Now, enjoy the show. Today, I want you to tell me how you really feel. To help you, I will share my own journey of learning about feelings and understanding how my emotions impact my life and my growth process. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Insight Timer, depending on where you're listening. That's how you help others find this helpful content. Often in life, we either don't know what we really feel or maybe hesitant to admit what we feel because we think certain feelings are either sinful or less than. That's when we deny our feelings. We fight them. We resist them or we simply avoid them. Have you ever felt that way? I certainly have. But today I won't only share my examples and stories from my personal life. I also got the permission to share some stories from the life of my good friend. We will call her Elena, but it's not her real name. <laughs> She's a beautiful young woman who lives in New York. She is now at the age I was 10 years ago, when I started making a lot of mistakes. She was raised in an environment opposite to my abusive family. She was actually loved and cared for. Yet everything she feels today I either feel or felt in the past. And how she practices and relates to life is my exact experience. So I thought you would be moved or maybe touched if I included some of her stories into this episode. And she was also excited that perhaps her experiences will help you. This podcast is aimed to really help you focus on understanding yourself, your own emotions, your own experiences, your own feelings. But you know how often all of that that we feel, we question. We question if our feelings and emotions are biblical or maybe godly, ungodly, unbiblical. So to lay the foundation for what we will be discussing today, I wanted to first share with you some of the stories showcasing in the Bible the emotions and feelings of Jesus. Again, why would I do that? Because often we don't want to acknowledge our own emotions as we see them sinful, unbiblical, and ungodly. What I'm about to share with you now will help you validate any and all of your emotions that you experience on a daily basis. So the Bible mentions clearly the feelings Jesus felt, such as anger, grief, excitement, compassion, anxiety, empathy, desperation, surrender, and love. Jesus was fully God and fully human. 
Of course, the Bible has many more of the emotions of Jesus discussed, but this podcast is about you. That's why we will take a quick look at just those few emotions to lay the foundation for the content I'll share with you here in just a few minutes. Okay, are you ready? Let's take a closer look to explore the emotions of Jesus now. Okay, so Jesus felt anger. Mark 3, 5 portrayed Jesus looking around with anger at religious leaders. It says, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So why was Jesus angry? Because the religious leaders were concerned only to see if Jesus would break the rules by healing a man on the Sabbath, which is when you're not supposed to work. So-called work. <laughs> so when Jesus did heal the man, they immediately plotted to kill him. But though Jesus was angry with these religious rulers, he was also grieved by the condition of their stony hearts. While the cruelty of their actions deserved his anger, the condition of their hearts caused him grief. Remember this, please, because we will be referring to this story again and again in today's episode. Jesus also felt grief. So we already mentioned that Jesus felt grief for the hearts of stones the religious leaders had, and Jesus also wept at the tomb of Lazarus. John 11.33 describes it as, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. John 11.38 continues to explain how when Jesus stepped near to the tomb of his friend, again he was greatly disturbed. Jesus wept. Have you ever wept? Can you imagine Jesus, fully God and fully human, weeping from grief? How much more permission do we have to grieve, to be sad, and to weep when we are distressed? The most powerful example of grief, for me personally, is described in Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Can you relate? Have you ever felt like this? Has your soul ever been overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of not even wanting to leave? I know I have felt this way when my husband of four months filed for divorce last year, telling me he doesn't want to be married anymore. And all he wants is to be an Ironman and compete in Kona. And he called his bicycle in my face 
my other wife I cheat on you with. I wept. Jesus also felt excitement. Jesus loved with strong desire. Luke 22.15 explains how he told his friends, I have desired with great desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The combination of the verb desire and the noun desire doubles the intensity in Jesus' expression of his deep excitement to be with his friends. Have you ever experienced genuine excitement about something or someone? Excitement in anticipation of spending quality time with someone special. Excitement about a gift or maybe excitement about a new stage of life like marriage or pregnancy. A new project, a book or piece of art, a trip, a party. <laughs> I know I certainly felt deep excitement when I walked down the aisle and saw Michael there on May 14th last year, 2016, I was so excited and I never even had cold feet. Jesus felt compassion. The Bible has several stories in which we see that Jesus felt deep compassion. Compassion for people in need, such as leper, in Mark 1, 40, 41, the story is described. A widow by the coffin of her only son. That story is described in Luke 7, 13. And two blind men. That's Matthew 20, 34. Jesus also felt compassion when he saw crowds starving for bread. That story is described in Mark 8, 2. And many more examples. Jesus also felt anxiety. You know, when I learned that, when I really studied that, it gave me so much relief to know that Jesus felt anxiety. So many Christians I know feel that their anxiety is ungodly. And so many churches will tell you, just go have more faith, pray, pray it away. No. Even Jesus, who was fully God, felt anxiety. Jesus was troubled in spirit when he told his disciples that one of them would betray him. That's in John 13, uh, 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. He begged them to stay awake and keep him company. But they slept because of sorrow. His emotions were too heavy for them to bear. So they escaped into sleep, leaving Jesus alone. Have you ever experienced something like this in your life? When your heart was so heavy and you were so anxious, that you ask for someone to pray for you or to be with you, but they turned their back on you. I know I certainly experienced something like that very often in my marriage with Michael last year. 
Mark 14.33 explains, Jesus took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Jesus agonized over the awful choice to endure or to escape the cross. As he wrestled in prayer, he was drenched in his own sweat, and it says, which ran like blood to the ground. Luke twenty-two forty-four. Jesus was sweating with blood from anxiety. Mark 14, 36 shows us the severe anxiety Jesus went through. He said, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. This last statement Jesus made to God is such a genuine demonstration of complete surrender. So Jesus felt surrender. Surrender means no matter what, you deny yourself and you give up control to let God's good works happen in you or through you. Just like the Gospel of Mark, Luke twenty-two forty-two describes Jesus praying to God, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Surrender. Jesus felt empathy. His empathy flowed out from his intimacy with his Father God. It was after a time of withdrawal to a lonely place by himself for prayer that Jesus saw the leper and felt empathy, the ability to feel what people felt. Mark 1.35.42 and Matthew 14.13.14 describe just some examples of how Jesus felt empathy. But also he felt irritation. <laughs> Have you ever been irritated at someone? I certainly have. That feeling is very familiar to me. And when we do, then we can condemn and judge ourselves? No, don't. Let's not do that. Jesus felt irritated. Mark 10.14 says, When his disciples did not allow mothers to bring their children to him for his blessings, Jesus felt indignant. Indignant is a feeling characterized by expression of strong displeasure at something considered unjust, offensive, or insulting. What happened was the disciples' self-importance irritated Jesus. He slapped them with rebukes, let the children come to me. Stop preventing them. And then he hugged the children and blessed them. Can you relate? Jesus also felt love. He pointed to his own sacrificial death as the ultimate measure of his love for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life 
for one's friends. Jesus asked his friends to live up to that standard of love. This is my commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. John 15, 12. To live by that standard of love requires much more than emotions. It calls for total commitment to give up your life, your wants and needs for someone else and to trust in the power of God to keep that commitment. We cannot do it on our own. I know I couldn't. I know I was unable to. And I'll share it with you today. But loving as Jesus loves also includes emotions, intense, diverse, deep emotions. His kind of love will arouse emotions of compassion, anger, grief, deep sorrow, and overwhelming joy. Have you ever felt that strong feeling of love and care for someone? I know I have. This kind of sacrificial love is what I experienced for the first time in my life toward the man I married last year on May 14th. This kind of love we will be referring to in our today's discussion and in the future podcast episodes as well. It's called Agape Love. I would like for you to pause and answer the question, how do you feel this very moment? Can you recognize and label your feelings? If you're not sure what feelings there are to feel, simply go to anasabo.com feelings and you will see examples of negative, positive and neutral feelings you might feel. So you can recognize and name them. Then you can manage them. In this moment, are you feeling excitement, judgment, cynicism, joy, acceptance, sarcasm, fear, anger, surprise, anxiety, resentment, anticipation, compassion? What is it? Let's pause for just a moment and answer this by listening to what is happening on the inside, in your own body, in your own heart. If you figured out how you feel, share it with me at nsaibo.com slash feel, if you want to. I do care. I want to hear from you. Again, it's nsaibo.com slash feel. Are you curious to know how I feel right now? <laughs> I feel blessed to have this opportunity to discuss such an important topic of emotions and feelings, which has been the most critical in my whole adult life to help me heal. I will reveal you my secrets today. Secrets of healing, addictions, obsessions, grief, pain, hurt, past, anything. I'll share my secret with you. I also feel a lot of anxiety sharing my heart with you like this through the content that I prepared today. What I plan to reveal in today's podcast episode is by far the most open, honest, and vulnerable 
content I've ever put out there. I also feel excited knowing that when you hear this episode, it will really help you. It will comfort you. And hopefully it will facilitate your healing in your life. And I also feel thirsty. (laughs) So let me just drink some water real quick. You know that this podcast is recorded live. As always, I'm sitting here on the floor in my closet in a very uncomfortable pause. And um, it's because I want you to have a great listening experience. So I'm hiding from any noise. Okay, hold on. Let me drink some water. (laughs) I have lemon and ginger and mint in my water. Mm, Yum. Right now, I'm feeling a feeling of joy and satisfaction. (laughs) Feelings are interesting and intriguing. It's not easy to differentiate what you feel. Sometimes you think you're angry, but it's just ego. Other times you think you're indifferent, but everyone sees your true zeal. So how do you understand your feelings? It takes practice and it takes willingness to feel. To point out different emotions, causes and meanings, you need to study this topic if you truly want to heal. This topic is my passion. You see, I am a vacillator and I'll explain in just a few short minutes what that means, but vacillators are people who mostly don't have a clue how they feel And their primary emotion is anger and rage. It was true for me for many years. Growing up, there wasn't a lot of space or opportunity for me to feel anything but anger and rage. I had to survive every single day. I had to fight for my life. I had to defend myself from my own family. If you don't know my story, I shared it with you on anazabo.com slash about. Our childhood experiences significantly influence our emotional profile as adults. I never believed it until late 2013. That was when I left my ex-husband and two stepsons. Um, If you don't know from my story, I'll remind you that I was married three times. And so that was my second marriage. I was only married one time as a Christian. I was in my car driving and I called my girlfriend to tell her that my marriage was over. I told her in a manner that you would report the weather for the day to someone. She was silent and then she said, well, are you going to cry? How are you feeling? And I said, no, I'm not going to cry. I'm not feeling anything. And it was true. Right after that, I had the most severe spike in my sexual addiction, sought help, came to Jesus, took my celibacy journey, and everything changed for me. Again, if this is all new information to you about me, please go to enazebo.com about to learn the whole story. So everything changed for me because I opened 
myself to exploring my emotions, feelings, my painful past, my actual pain in the moment by grieving. And with that, I can tell you, my human experience on earth has been so much more fulfilling, rich, and satisfying. And I stopped escaping my life adversity into sexual addictions. Luckily, I had a great mentor at Bucket Church here in Atlanta, which I attended between 2011 and 2016. My mentor gave me a great book called Discovering Intimacy, Relating to God and Others as a Single Adult. That book was not just a read. It was a journey of studying yourself, your life experiences, the influence of childhood relationships on how you relate to the world around you today and so much more. I studied the book and had a journey made, as the book actually suggested. It was a woman who studied the material with me and we did the book exercises together and then shared our findings and breakthroughs. It was like a book club. I was also seen as sex addiction therapist at the time. I remember this meeting with her when she was asking me about my childhood and how I felt today And I said that I was just fine. And I truly believe that I was just fine. Because I was clueless. Really, I had no idea. I remember this life-changing moment when she asked me, Anna, have you ever grieved? And I was like, what? (laughs) She clarified. Basically, have you ever pulled out your childhood pictures, looked at them, cried, imagined what it would be like to have a father, to have a loving mother, to be accepted and not abused, to not ever experience rape or suicide ever. Have you ever grieved? I thought she was out of her mind completely. I thought to myself, surely this woman is crazy. I told her, No, I have never done this, and why would I? This sounds like emotional suicide. Why would I ever want to do this to myself? And she replied, That is what's called grief. It actually heals you. I left that therapy session so frustrated with her. I called my good friend, who was a big guy, tall, always smiling, big muscles, the kind of guy whom you would never imagine do the things the therapist asked me to do. I wanted to complain to him about the crazy suggestion, but I first asked him about the support group he was attending after losing his five-year-old son to a uh, 33-month long cancer bottle. He told me that he found a grief support group and was excited about it. He told me how helpful the grief support group was to him. And I'm only laughing now and smiling a little bit because it was so ironic how God worked truly all things together for good. So I asked him, how was it helpful and what exactly did you do there? And he said, do you really want to know about grief? And I said, yes. So he went on to explain how grief is something that comes upon you. You don't control it. And you have to process it for as long as it lasts. You have to grieve 
You have to give into it. You have to make time and space for it. He explained to me that he had pictures of his dead son on his iPhone, and when grief would come, he would get the pictures out, close the door, sit in a chair, look at the pictures, and weep. I was speechless. Even now, as I'm telling you this, I have chills. I realized that the therapist was not crazy. I did pull out my pictures, and I did, little by little, start imagining what it would be like for me if I had a good family, a safe home environment, and if I was loved and accepted there. And I wept. Again and again and again, I wept. And in the process, I was learning how to feel. I was relaxing into whatever feelings were coming upon me. I was not resisting or fighting them. And as my anger got acknowledged, understood, and healed, the room was created for joy, compassion, and a variety of other human feelings. It all took time. It's been a process. A painful one, but I love the benefits of it. That is what I want to talk to you in this podcast. I remember in the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that I was a vacillator and I promised to share with you what that actually means. So from the same mentor at Bucket Church, whom I mentioned earlier, I got the gift of another book called How We Love. By the way, for you, I will link to all the books I'm going to mention today, and I'm going to talk about a few videos and poems, and I'm going to link to all of this at annazabo.com feel. How We Love book taught me that our childhood experiences and attachments cause us to develop emotional profiles classified into five categories. Vacillators, avoiders, pleasers, controllers, and victims. Just real quick, let me tell you about each. This information is actually provided by howwelove.com. Howwelove.com. So first, let's talk about vacillator because that is my profile. Growing up with an unpredictable parent Vacillator's needs aren't top priority. Remember I told you in my story that I had to raise my mom? I was kind of mother and she was daughter. It was really enmeshed, messed up, <laughs> mixed up. So with that consistent parental, parental attention, the vacillator develops feelings of abandonment and by the time the parent feels like giving them affection again, the child is actually tired of waiting and is too angry to receive any affection or love. As adults, vacillators are on a quest to find the consistent love they never received as children. They idealize new relationships, but then get tired of the relationship once life, and actually the relationship itself gets less than perfect. <sighs> This profile has always been me. 
My mother was never an adult. Like I told you, she was very childlike and she always needed me to take care of her emotional needs. The relationship we had was enmeshed. I think I said it word, this word. When the roles of a mother and a daughter become entangled. In an enmeshed relationship, a mother provides her daughter love and attention, but tends to exploit the relationship. Her needs, the mother's needs, are always the top priority, and basically she lives through her daughter. My mother has always lived and lives until this moment with her mother. My mother is 60 plus years old, and my grandmother is 90 plus. My mother's sister also lives there with her multiple lovers, and that's how I grew up. My mother would tell me, I didn't get to sleep with a lot of men, so you go and do it for me and for you. And I would. And then she would ask me the details of my sexual experiences. I was very young, and I had no idea what was actually happening to me. But talking about my experiences with men was the only way for me to bond with my mother, who was otherwise always saying, I hate you, and all I want is for you to die. And she would say it, looking me straight in the eye. Growing up in an enmeshed relationship with my mother, I developed high empathy, as I always had to constantly scan her emotions to predict if today I will be beaten up or hugged any moment. That is what you need to know about me as we talk about narcissistic abuse next week in our next podcast episode. Narcissists look for empaths to use them as their narcissistic supply. The narcissist himself has an emotional profile of a self centered, self-absorbed, self-obsessed avoider. So avoider is next on our list. You ready? Avoider. Coming from a home that is often low in affection, but which places high value on independence and self-reliance, the avoider grows up learning only to take care of himself. To deal with the anxiety of having so little comfort and nurturing from his caregivers or parents, he has learned to restrict his feelings and suppress his needs. As an adult, the avoider can seem emotionally distant or disengaged. Not all avoiders, of course, are narcissists, but the narcissist in your life is likely the avoider. I was married to a narcissist. The narcissist gives you silent treatment if he's unhappy or upset about something. He doesn't verbalize his thoughts. He stonewalls you instead, setting you up for failure every time because he never matured enough to an adult to be able to actually have a productive adult conversation. He doesn't know how this makes you feel because he himself has no feelings. How come? Okay, remember the avoider had to suppress his feelings and emotions in his childhood? Well, he grew up into the narcissist who doesn't have any feelings or emotions at all, except the ones he mirrors from others, because he doesn't have 
real self. The narcissist has only his ego that needs to be puffed up with praise, compliments, medals, and admiration of others all the time. But he hides his fragile ego by pretending to be a people pleaser. So the next emotional profile we'll explore is pleaser. You ready? Okay, pleasers usually grow up in a home with a parent who is overly protective, angry, and or critical of them. Pleaser children do everything they can to be good and avoid troubling their highly reactive parents. They learn to spend their energy comforting or pleasing their parent instead of actually receiving comfort themselves from their parents or caregivers. As adults, pleasers tend to continually monitor the moods of those around them in an attempt to keep everyone happy. They're peacemakers. <laughs> Let's just not talk about it. However, this can lead to resentment in them that they feel toward everyone. An emotion that can break down a relationship or drive a pleaser to leave the relationship because they're uncomfortable, because they cannot speak up, because they just want to make everyone happy. I was also married to a pleaser. I was married to a controller and a pleaser and a narcissist. I told you about my three marriages. The pleaser always lived with his mother and is now married for the fourth time, has three children and still lives with his mother. The pleaser rarely can be a husband or a productive involved partner to anyone because he is already married to his mother. And she is certainly not letting her powers go. <laughs> oh, it's not funny. I'm only laughing because that was for a while my very life. It was really difficult. All the pleaser wants always is to be good. And so he complies with his controlling mother's demands of him or his life or his wife. He has no direction except that which his mother sets for him in his whole life. So be careful not to confuse the avoider narcissist with pleaser because the narcissist only pretends to be a pleaser to be liked by people who give him praise, which is essential to feed his fragile ego. That's why he also always needs a victim who suffers his narcissistic abuse. Victim, by the way, is next in line. You ready? Victim profile is an adult who was a kid surviving a chaotic home environment by trying to stay under the radar, making themselves as invisible as possible. They would hide, learning how to escape into their own heads to lessen the pain from their angry, violent, chaotic parents. Victims lack a sense of self-worth and are often anxious and depressed. Rather than engage, they will resort to just going through the motions in order to get by. Victims may emulate their childhood home environment by pursuing a relationship with a controller. I told you I was a vacillator.
I'm a vacillator in many ways, but we all have an emotional profile that has a mix of two. So for me, vacillator is primary mixed with victim. <clears throat> I already shared with you about my <clears throat> excuse me, chaotic home environment. I kind of told you all the details of what I had gone through in my story on anazaba.com slash about. So <clears throat> this profile is in my mix because I grew up basically experiencing violence every day at home. I was beaten, insulted, chased, humiliated, verbally abused. I was threatened with suicides, shamed for being born and also being born a girl. Remember that in my story, I shared with you that police had to take me to a shelter for victims of domestic violence because of the four police reports and all the violence I endured in my first marriage. I also shared all the details with you in last week's podcast called Empowering Women. So that was when I was married to a controller. At 24 years old, I married a controller. And the controller is the last profile on our list. <laughs> so controller. Controllers need control to ensure that the vulnerable, negative feelings they experienced in childhood remain suppressed from their adult lives. Having control means to them having protection from feelings like fear, humiliation, and helplessness. However, anger is the one emotion that is not vulnerable. And so anger and intimidation are often used as means to maintain control. The controller told me what he wants me to do, when he wants me to do it. He changed my cell phone number anytime anyone but him called me. He followed me anywhere I went, even when he was supposed to be at work. And of course, I was beaten up regularly until police took me away. I was his fourth wife going through this with him. He himself was raised by an alcoholic mother and he hated women because of his childhood trauma. So now when I share that, I want to say no emotional profile is good or bad and no mix of emotional profiles is good or bad. We all need to work on ourselves and learn how to feel, how to not be afraid of our emotions, how to relax into them and allow them instead of resisting them. Resisting our own emotions causes us to deny a part of ourselves and resort to addictions or abuse to try to make ourselves feel better. So today, I am ready to share with you some of the feelings and emotions I have learned to allow for myself. This is going to be tough for me. It's been an uneasy journey learning to recognize and name feelings and of course to feel them knowingly has been truly life-changing for me as a vacillator who's used to feeling primary anger and rage. I'll go down the list in no particular order just mixing positive feelings with painful ones so it's less overwhelming for you. I will start us off with admiration. 
And the reason why is because before Michael and I got married last year, we had a beautiful season of courting. He was so attentive, thoughtful, cherishing toward me that I wrote him a thank you note every time we saw each other. That eventually became a Thanksgiving journal, I called it so. And I gave it to him as a wedding gift on May 14th last year. After that, that Thanksgiving journal was found on the floor, in the dust, under the bed, and Michael never read it. But I wrote it consistently out of the sense of deep admiration for the kind of great man he presented himself to be when he was courting me for marriage. Okay, are you ready? Here is my journey of learning how to feel emotions again. Number one, admiration. Admiration is described as a pleasurable contemplation. <laughs> Let me just read to you some of the excerpts from that Thanksgiving journal. Let me get it here. One moment. Dear Michael, you've amazed me with your open-mindedness and creativity. The dates you've organized for us have been mind-blowing, so joyful and so surprisingly rich in experiences. Picnic at the park and the first keys, movies, Christmas at your house with Tanya, book reading at Barnes & Noble, the cabin with your friends, horseback riding, jazz, book club dates, at Corner Bakery, breakfast at the clubhouse where I lived, high museum, tea at the intermezzo, jazz and dating, shooting. Thank you. Dear Michael, thank you for always building me up and giving me compliments and showing how much you believe in me. Thank you for calling me a princess, royalty, Basket secret, brilliant, gorgeous, beautiful, gift, treasure, jackpot, diamond, genius, and rock star. Thank you for that. When Michael filed for divorce four months after we got married last September, I was severely depressed and I drew very close to God. He carried me through every day of that miserable life in our marital residence. All kinds of abuse and mental cruelty I endured there. And as a result, I wrote this poem, Admiring God. It's called, God, I Admire You. Let me read it to you. God, I admire you for who you are a good, good father and a sovereign king. From your perfection, I'm in genuine awe. Beauty out of ashes you always bring. I admire your wisdom and infinite intelligence. I admire your kindness and amazing grace. My everyday life is of your mercy evidence. From every suffering, you propel me to a better place. 
The next emotion we'll be discussing is doubt. Doubt is opposite of confidence. It's a feeling of uncertainty. I experienced it every single day in my marriage with Michael. My paycheck was spent on his athletic endeavors and I had no money to buy food three times in four months of marriage because while he kept secret cash from me in his wallet for some paid gigs he did, I genuinely deposited my full paycheck into our joint checking account. So when he overspent, he was okay and I wasn't. Three months into our marriage, I discovered he didn't even bother to pay mortgage, electric bill, and life insurance he was responsible for paying. After I confronted him about that, he filed for divorce, dismissed it a few months later, asked to reconcile, and then filed for divorce again. The doubt I experienced from all the uncertainty I faced in this marriage with Michael was paralyzing. And here's what doubt feels like. Let me read it to you from my journal. Dear God, I've been asking you in my case for marriage journal to save my marriage by making Michael a follower of Jesus and renew his heart. It's been impossible for me to move on with my life, having a hundred percent confidence and hope that you will restore my marriage and praying for my husband's salvation daily with so much passion and confidence. I must move on to preserve my own mental health. If my arm was stuck under someone's car due to an accident, would I cut it off to save my life or to hold on to one part of me? And just die. I choose to leave. I choose to focus on you. I choose to grow in my relationship with you and let Michael go for good. Michael is a part of me since we became one in marriage, but he is a dying part of me that I'd better cut off if I plan to live a healthy life and glorify you with my thoughts, words, and deeds the way you ask me to. God, clear my mind, cleanse my pain, focus my thoughts on the beautiful future you have in store for me. Thank you, God, for who you are and who I am in you. Thank you for your grace, your eternal promises, your unconditional love and peace that passes all understanding. You can see that I was really, really doubtful because I wanted this marriage to be saved and I was praying with confidence for that, but that prevented me from moving on in real life that I live in this world. Even though we're not of the world, we live in the world. And I needed to move on. I was in the middle of a trial with him. Doubt prevents you from making actions. It leaves you on the side of the road of life to be a mere observer of how others live to the fullest while you are wondering what you should do. 
Doubt leaves you wondering what if and later thinking what could have been. Don't be a prisoner of doubt. Take action. Even if you're going to fail. For me, it's that case for marriage journal that I mentioned. I talked about it in my second podcast called How to Talk to God. I started the journal to make a case for marriage to God, asking him to reconcile our marriage and to make Michael new and to make our relationship new. I felt so doubtful and stupid starting such a journal in the midst of the second divorce trial Michael filed for. But I did it anyway, and it was so healing for me. It helped me grow. It helped me get closure. If you don't know about the Case for Marriage Journal, just go listen to the Conversations with God episode on this podcast. Actually, this very podcast is the result of me overcoming my doubt. Can you imagine the doubt I had thinking about putting myself out there so openly and vulnerably? But I did it anyway because I want to give all the glory and honor to God who delivered me through so much adversity in life. It's easy for people to praise God when life is rainbow unicorny and butterflies and pink glitters everywhere. I have been sharing my praise to God while going through divorces, depression, suicidal thoughts. I've been sharing and sharing that God is good and He is at work and there is hope. Do you have doubts that you need to recognize and overcome? What are you doubting right now in your life? The third emotion we'll be discussing is worry. Worry is defined as a process of one's mind dwelling on difficulty or troubles. Worry and anxiety are both caused by doubt. What worry looks like, I'm going to share with you from my journal. Let's see here. Dear God, it's a beautiful sunny afternoon, 25 degrees outside, snow is everywhere, as it was snowstorming last night. My husband never came home. Both of his cars are gone and the driveway was snowed all over very evenly, meaning he moved both cars early evening yesterday. Yesterday he decided to talk to me. He texted me at 6 a.m. saying, don't eat my food. I told him he doesn't have his own food because he was the one to kneel in front of me and ask for my hand and heart and life in marriage, and I gave it all to him. Now we are one. When I got home, he caught me half-naked in the hallway after I showered and demanded my attention. I turned toward him and I gave him my full attention. He said, I want you out of my life. What will it take for me to get rid of you? I told him that if he wanted to talk about our divorce, 
I would be open to the conversation with the mediator present, not one-on-one. He said there was nothing to mediate, and he just wanted me to move out. I walked down the stairs realizing he is crazy. He followed me. He stepped to the orange couch, and I was on the other side of it. He demanded my attention. I turned toward him. He told me that there is nothing to mediate and that he wants me out and he wants to be free from me. I told him the conversation is strange because he's asking me a question and when I answer, he's upset. He was aggressive. He was angry and he raised his voice. I felt paralyzed from fear. I told him if one more time he calls me a name or expresses his aggression toward me like this, I will call 911 and he will be the one to leave this house. He left in the evening and today in the morning I noticed that he didn't sleep at home. His coats are gone and so are both of his cars. You can see from this journal entry how scared I was. I was paralyzed by worry and fear. And to fight that, I prayed on my knees, in my car, at work, before bed, when I woke up, when I was in the shower, when I was cooking. And here's the poem I wrote, giving all my worries to God. It's called, You're Always Good. I've chased many dreams, turned into goals. I've pursued many things that were labeled as secular. Those paths led away from you into worldly roles where anxiety and fears were expected as regular. You've consistently blessed me with your special grace, and this time I've received your special lesson. There is nothing on earth I ever need to chase. There is no place I need to ever be to progressing. Right here where I'm at, here in your presence, I can tap into peace that can't be understood and enjoy your affection, protection, and pleasance and declare with confidence that you're always good. The fourth emotion we'll be discussing is love. We talked in the beginning of this podcast episode how Jesus loved and how he commanded us to love the same way. Sacrificially, selflessly, agape love, meaning unconditional type of love that helps people to forgive one another, to respect one another, and to serve one another day in and day out. I wrote several poems on this topic as I was on my journey of learning to love Michael that way, unconditionally, agape love. I did love there on him twice and pursued him as my husband wholeheartedly with such passion. If you don't know what love there is, you can either go to lovedaretest.com and see the book there or you can watch a movie called Fireproof. Fireproof is a Christian movie that shows you exactly what love there is. It's a 40-day journey where you sacrifice yourself 
to love with actions your spouse. Here today, I'm going to only share one point with you. And then I will produce a separate podcast episode specifically dedicated to the topic of love. The poem I will share with you now is about agape love, unconditional love. I remember realizing what a privilege it was for me to have an opportunity to learn to love Michael sacrificially. I myself grew as a person from the experience just as a human being. And my relationship with God became so much more intimate and deep. Here are the things I've learned about agape love. Again, this poem is called Unconditional Love. Unconditional love is not easy. Unconditional love is hard work. Unconditional love is soul cleansing. Unconditional love is responsibility, not a perk. Unconditional love is the opposite of ego. Unconditional love is a selfless gift. Unconditional love is exciting and intriguing. I'm always curious to see what else God enables me to give. To love unconditionally, we must practice. We must remember Christ and His sacrifice. We must choose kindness when ego attacks us. We must give without expectations. Ego is love's price. And when we fail at it often or seldom, we must reach out for God's grace. And start all over, being intentional and not random. And just remember why we decided to love in the first place. I was always asking myself, how did you get into this marriage? You made a decision to love this man. You must go back to that place to always remember why, how you got on this journey. Loving Michael required of me that I forgive him daily and stay committed to him, which we will also be discussing in just a minute, but most importantly, that I pray for him non-stop. And I did, every day, in the midst of all his nonsense, cruelty, divorces, I just kept praying for him as an act of my agape love. Here's just one poem prayer that came out of my prayers. I would call it even prayer journey that I went on for Michael. This poem is called Praying for My Husband. I wrote it based on my study of what God called a husband in a Christian marriage to be, which is what I asked of God when praying for Michael regularly. God, I'm praying for my husband, thanking you for him at first, and confessing him I love, and asking you to feel his thirst, to be Christ-like and a leader, sober-minded and steadfast, sacrificial and truth-seeker, dignified with sound faith, self-controlling be and loving, peaceful and understanding, to be honoring, church-going and provider outstanding. Thank you, God, again for him. Thank you for his precious life. 
Bless him, Father, and redeem, in Jesus' name, his loving wife. I expressed my love for Michael also through sacrificial actions. With my two back injuries, I was the only person cleaning our 1,800 square feet two-story marital residence from May 2016 through April 2017. And the biggest sacrifice for me was mowing the lawn. It was so physically painful, but I did it anyway to show my agape love to Michael. Are you feeling love? I mean, are you loving someone? The thing I realized on this journey of loving Michael as my husband, but, be, but being unloved, rejected, betrayed, and cheated on in return, is that what matters to our relationship with God? And our eternity is our own actions. Only our own actions and how we interact with our loved ones matters to our eternity and our relationship with God. What they do toward us doesn't matter to our relationship with God and our eternity. I was under the care of a trauma counselor who works with victims of narcissistic abuse in 2016, but also I saw a biblical counselor every week on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. She always told me that Michael's actions toward me are irrelevant to our sessions and to my eternity, but my actions toward Michael are everything to my relationship with God and my eternity. Are you focusing on loving the way Jesus called us to love? Are you doing the right thing out of gratitude to God for your salvation, no matter the actions of your spouse or loved one? I have so much peace today knowing that I loved Michael wholeheartedly with passion and excitement and dedication, commitment and faithfulness with all my might not being perfect at all, in fact, failing at it. But I wasn't even skilled at loving him. But I learned with dedication and I applied what I've learned every single day. I have so much grief that Michael did not love me, but it's fading. I'm healing from it. But I know that if I didn't know with confidence that I gave my all to loving Michael in our marriage, I would be devastated forever. So my calling, my challenge to you, focus on how you love. Allow yourself to love. Give yourself a permission to love like Jesus loved you. Our next emotion we're going to be discussing is judgment. Judgment is easy. It's easy to judge others. We're also experts at judging ourselves. 
and taking personal judgments of others toward us. Remember I mentioned my beautiful friend Elena from New York? She has anxiety sometimes, and I do too. I know you do as well. <laughs> Don't we all? Even Jesus felt anxiety. So when Elena shares with her brother, who is her pastor also, he tells her it's ungodly and something is wrong with her. Do you think her brother is right? Remember we started this episode with the feeling Jesus felt. Remember how much anxiety he went through? He was fully God and Elena is not. I am not. You are not. The Bible instructs us to cast our anxieties on God, which means God told us we sure will have anxiety, right? So is it ungodly? Of course not, especially knowing that Jesus felt anxiety, being fully God. Do you think Elena feels comforted by her pastor brother, or is he just escalating her anxiety with his comments? Of course he escalates it. How? Because hearing his judgment toward her, she then starts judging herself. It's a vicious cycle. The only way out is to relax into whatever they experience and observe it, accept God's grace and move on, renewed with biblical truth of the gospel. Jesus died to set us free from judgment, including self-judgment. God sees us as holy, righteous, and redeemed. And we can see others as such. And I'm going to read you something that I realized for myself, which was so healing. This is a journal entry that I made as I went through divorce care um, at the church across the street here from where I live. And I grieved um, quite a few losses. I think 30 losses is what I grieved. And this is number nine. Loss of my idea of Michael that I married. And I went on and on to describe to God my loss and my feelings, just my recognition of the kind of man I married and the pain it caused me to not be married to him and be married to some other Michael. The Michael I've been married to has been ignoring me for the most part and has been in a relationship with a bicycle that he calls my other wife I cheat on you with, in his own words. Michael I married was a leader, a thoughtful leader. Michael, my husband, is a trader 
who betrayed me and cheated on me with a bicycle. And he traded his marriage for an Iron Man. But as I'm grieving this huge loss, this premeditated deception, I have to remember that the Michael, just the way I know him, the Michael I married, with all his crap, betrayal, arrogance, narcissism, self-serving approach to our marriage, bicycle obsession, etc., etc., including the two divorces, this very Michael I have learned to love unconditionally for eternity. I've chosen him after I've learned what a fool he is and a traitor. I've been faithful. I drove home to him every day for five hours in heavy traffic because he is my brother in Christ and my husband and I love him. The love I love him with is not a blind romantic love, not a sexual passion, not admiration or obsession. My love for Michael is mature, it's real, it's choice-based, it's commitment-filled, it's fueled by God's truth, and most importantly, it's unconditional. And that's what I need to remember as I grieve this very loss. That Michael, my husband, after everything he put me through, I choose to view as holy, righteous, and redeemed. Because Michael is my brother in Christ. I tell you, this was so, so powerful for me. That was compassion-based. That was also grace-based, the grace I received. That's how Jesus views me, holy, righteous, and redeemed. I said, you know what? You got to take it and apply it to Michael. The sixth emotion we'll be discussing is compassion. Compassion motivates people to go out of their way to help the physical, spiritual, or emotional pains of another human being. I felt so much compassion for Michael in our marriage. Knowing his childhood story and recognizing his trauma, that is why I decided to love him with agape love through the thick and thin he chose for us in this marriage. The experience that I'm grateful for every single day now is when on February 13th this year he became very sick. After he did just another Ironman race for just another medal in Alabama. It was the time when I took off a few days to prepare for our upcoming divorce trial and I needed to submit a ton of documents that his attorney requested. I was living in the master bedroom at the time and he was living in the guest bedroom across the hallway. He didn't acknowledge me in any way for many weeks, except in January when he came behind me and spooked me and said, hey, what is it going to take for me to get rid of you? I just shared that story with you. So now it was February 13th, 2017. Michael was coughing with green mucus. And since I was the only person cleaning everything, 
during our entire marriage in the house, I saw it and heard it loud and clear. So I was in pain for his pain. I felt so much compassion. He was in bed. I made him food and cut healthy fruit, made him vitamin drink, and placed everything nicely on a tray, on a little table I put outside guest bedroom, and I knocked on the guest bedroom door. Of course, there was no answer. In a few hours, I saw that some of what I prepared was gone, and some was denied. <sighs> I swallowed my pride. Since I had already predecided to love Michael with agape, sacrificial love. And so I cleaned up. Later I prepared the service again. Again, some of what I prepared was received with silence and some was denied with silence. On February 14th, I had to go to teach a leadership class at Georgia State University. As I was preparing content for that class, Michael went to the doctor. It was so painful to see him so sick. It was the first time he left the guest bedroom. I sat there on the couch downstairs in the living room and I said, Jesus, what do you want me to do? And Jesus said to me loud and clear, Michael is your brother in Christ. Go love him as I have loved you. I went upstairs, changed his bed sheets, did seven loads of laundry, vacuumed, mopped, dusted, sprayed Lysol everywhere, and made him food again. And I continued that every day until he was back on his feet. And on March 7th was our divorce mediation when he paid me to move out. Next time I saw him was during our divorce jury trial in August this year. During my leadership talk on Valentine's Day at Georgia State University, I shared with the students about the gospel. In the context of career success, productivity, performance, and how God was working in me through these divorces Michael filed for, how life-changing it was for me to take care of him while he was sick, and how this compassion I was practicing was for me to honor and glorify God and show my love to Michael. The students didn't want to go home, and that class lasted one and a half hours longer than their normal class. They were also asking me where was that good God, my Heavenly Father I was praising, not saving my marriage and not rescuing me from Michael. But that's a whole other topic I'll cover on this podcast when I talk about why God allows bad things to happen. It will be in a few weeks. Taking care of sick Michael revealed to me how much I myself needed Jesus and how I was disrespectful and demanding toward Michael in the beginning of our marriage. So I wrote this poem that I shared on Facebook and many people took it as if Michael was all good and I was all bad. In reality, this poem I'm about to share with you is a result of me experiencing agape love and compassion for Michael, regardless his cruel actions toward me and his bad intentions. 
It was a poem of my realization that only my actions matter to my eternity. If you watched our wedding video, which I can link to on this page, um, annazeba.com slash feel. So if you watched our wedding video, you saw and heard that Michael said his goal in this marriage was to lead me closer to Christ. So let me read you this poem. One moment, I have to find it. It's a long one, so I don't have it printed. I lived my good life until I met you. I loved everything about it. But when from first sight I fell in love with you, I felt that the love multiplied in my heart, what that initial love even exceed. God gave me time and his mercy and grace, and I was for long Jesus' bride. But when he gave me you to love and embrace, I felt unequipped and unprepared to love you right. You said we were two imperfect people and that God would guide our walk. You asked for my hand in marriage and I said, if we cripple, you will lead us closer to Christ and commit to the hard work. I said yes, and I do, and I entered the covenant. And I wanted to love you, respect you, and honor you. But when I saw that the world and not God in your life became dominant, confused, devastated, angry, and resentful toward you, I grew. Being still unequipped to love you perfectly, unable to practice unconditional love, without that promised leadership from you, I hurtfully blamed you, condemned you, raged at you, all of the above. Falling in love with you was easy. You were the only man to always have my heart. But when your bicycle obsessions with medals got you too busy, that's where our marriage covenant was tested hard. We abandoned each other and our vows. We betrayed, deceived, and abused each other every day. But through that pain, I've learned what kind of growth God allows when browsing inside myself, seeking how to God obey. And on my journey, I've learned that you're imperfect and broken. Your faults are many, but so are mine. And the love I feel for you in my heart, even though unspoken, grew to now be unconditional, compassionate, and divine. I've learned that my expectations were too many. Though came from your own PDF called The Right Man, they were unrealistic, burdening, and excluded any idea that a husband is just another fallen fellow human. You waited 11 months to even meet me, and only 4 months to file for divorce. You chose an Iron Man medal over your covenant commitment, but I forgive you because I understand my own imperfections, of course. I pray every day about your journey, for God to draw you closer to Him, 
to guide you to seek the truth from Jesus and not your attorney, to heal your heart and to put in there a godly, not worldly hymn. And though I've been away from you for a month now, I confess that my love for you only grew. And surely it's been an exhausting emotional rodeo, yet I have been remembering only the good in you. As God is healing my heart now, He is revealing my own imperfections to me. The impatience with the Iron Man addiction, our initial emotional rodeo, the fear, the anger, and the lack of compassion toward your bicycle obsession in me. While I couldn't see those things in the mirror, your faults at the time were obvious to me. But the more I praise Jesus as my healer, the less I focus on your sin, and so He heals the sin in me. So after all, I can confidently say I'm so grateful for you, for your love, for our marriage, and even the pain. For God's gift of breaking my heart and making me even more faithful. For reading me of myself, my expectations, and making my heart pure again. You said your goal was to lead me closer to Jesus. I'm not sure about leading, but pushing, yes. So, as our divorce trial is approaching in June to free us, you surely succeeded in that one goal, I confess. My relationship with you did not work out, but my relationship with Christ only grew. And as I've learned to forgive and accept you, without a doubt, He drew me closer to Him, as if you just always knew. So thank you for this devastating experience. Thank you for pushing me into God's loving arms. Thank you for the feelings of love and loss that are both so serious. Thank you for revealing to me your painful bullshit so I don't just love you for your awesome charms. Through that, I learned what unconditional love is and how I did not give it to you and how now I'm able to feel the love for you beyond and above this. And through all of that, my appreciation for God's endless, amazing grace also grew. The feeling number seven we'll be discussing is acceptance. Compassion and acceptance are the opposite of judgment. If you listen to uh, the podcast episode here called The Conversations with God, you know that on Labor Day last year, I said mean things to Michael via text message. I was very sad because of it, and I regretted my offensive words deeply. So I signed up to see a biblical counselor weekly and learn how to glorify God in the midst of my devastating marriage and divorces. I also started Love Dare on Michael to learn how to love him. And I took a test on lovedaretest.com. There you are basically evaluated on a scale from 0 to 1000 on such aspects of love as acceptance, allowing, attention, affirmation, affection, apology, and abiding. 
I scored a total of only 308 out of a thousand points and I scored zero points on acceptance. I worked on this one until the end, I would tell you, and I'm working on it even now, accepting Michael's free will to end our marriage. God gave him free will. I would love for you to go to lovetheirtest.com and I'll link to it on annazaba.com slash feel. And I would love for you to take the test to see how are you doing on acceptance. It's the next level of human experience for me to say, I accept Michael and his pain-causing decisions. Here's what acceptance looked like for me in July this year as we were getting ready to go to um, divorce jury trial, which is actually why our divorce hearing didn't take place in June, as you heard from the poem, because we had divorce jury trial in August. So let me share with you. Dear God, it's been hard to accept these divorces. Michael's actions have really impacted my mental health, but enough confusion. You gave Michael free will. I know that. Michael used it to destroy our marriage. Okay. Michael is a part of me which is dead. I understand it now. You called me to a life of peace. I'm clear on that. To have peace, I must cut out this part of me and I must accept the deadness of it. I accept that you gifted all of us free will. I accept that we use it however we want. I accept that Michael used me, lured me into this marriage to conquer me as a medal and to upgrade his premarital residence so, so, so he can sell it and profit from it. I accept that this marriage has ended. I accept that I must let go of my hopes for any reconciliation because Michael is not interested. I accept my new life, peaceful, God-glorifying, filled with joy, free of abuse and mental manipulation, life of clarity and focus, productive life. I accept the fact that you would never fail me. Never forsake me. Never abandon me. I thank you for sparing me from a miserable life with Michael. I thank you, God, for this acceptance. I thank you for everyone who's been ministering to me and pouring into me. I'm moving on with Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. What is it that you need to accept in your life? What circumstances? What pain? What decisions of others that really impacted you and your future? The eighth feeling we'll be discussing today is sadness. When I moved out of our marital residence on April 1st this year, living on a river, I was sitting there on the dock journaling and not wanting to talk to anyone. 
or do anything. And I was just crying. My neighbors here had paddle boards and kayaks and wanted to take me on the water, but I was allowing my sadness. People were trying to persuade me that I needed to smile and to move on and to be positive. Never allow people to tell you how you should feel. Your feelings can't be escaped. They need to be felt, they need to be allowed, and they need to be worked through. The best way to process sadness is to cry, journal, and talk to God. It doesn't mean that it will go away forever. I've processed all my sadness as I went through the pain of my journey with Michael, and I was at peace already until earlier this month, my friend, who was also my bridesmaid, sent me a Facebook message. Let me just read you from my journal what I wrote two days after that. Here's this journal. Dear God, it's a quiet rainy Saturday. I just finished breakfast. Bruna is sleeping here in his bed in the dining room. I love this day. I love the peace. I love my hot green strawberry tea with honey, mint, and ginger. I love that while my body was trying to get sick, I didn't let it happen, and my throat and nose are fine. I loved my morning fun text chat with my friend, encouraging one another through life's trials. I loved my workout at home. I loved my healthy breakfast. I love listening to the rain and think. I love taking the new HubSpot Academy training last night and teaching the fundamentals of inbound to my friend who's trying to start a business. I love life. I love being in the world. I love being your daughter. And I love feeling all feelings, even sorrow and overwhelming grief. Two days ago, when my bridesmaid sent me that Facebook message that made all the sweet pre-wedding videos pop up from May 13th, where Michael and I just finished the venue decorations for our wedding next day on Saturday, and we danced. I wept watching those. Apparently, they popped up because she and I last chatted on Facebook on Friday before our wedding on May 13th. God, I wept and wept for 30 minutes. But what's good about the experience is that I feel fully human. I remembered how after my divorce a few years ago, I was driving home and my girlfriend asked me if I was going to cry. I thought it was ridiculous to ask me that because I wasn't. And then she said it was strange. She asked me what I felt and all I felt was nothingness. It was then that I started working with a therapist to help me feel feelings, including grief. God, feeling grief now, feeling sorrow, feeling so much love and compassion for Michael, feeling sadness, all are new to me. 
This has been a growth journey. Crying so much has been healing. Allowing all these feelings and being present in them, with them, not fighting, not pretending like I don't care or don't feel or that Michael doesn't matter to me. This has been amazing. Being fully human is amazing. Feeling love toward Michael, unconditional love, is new and incredibly transformational. Feeling grief and sorrow and not running and seeking rescue in sex, alcohol, shopping, clubbing. This is amazing. I'm so grateful that you have me on this special journey as you're preparing me for my eternity, making me more Christ-like. Thank you, God. Amen. My question to you now is this. Knowing that even Jesus was sad, do you allow yourself to feel sadness, face it, be in it, process it, so that you can heal and so that you can feel? The ninth feeling we'll be discussing is depression. Disclosure, I am not talking here about a clinical depression, which I know nothing about. I only have experience with situational depression that was caused by mental cruelty, divorces, loss of self-worth when Michael treated me in full bicycle. And that's the only depression I'm talking here about. I have never taken any depression medication, nor have I ever been prescribed any. I worked through my situational depression, facing it with prayer on my knees, crying out to God and casting my anxieties on Him, meditating daily, creating headspace for processing and also journaling to recognize and face my feelings. That kind of depression is caused by hopelessness. After Michael called his bicycle, my other wife, I cheat on you with refused to even have intimacy with me physically, saying he wanted to save himself for his Ironman activities, spend all money in our checking account, leaving me with negative balance three times, unable to buy food, and didn't even bother to pay mortgage or electricity. I was hopeless, and there were reasons for that. I can describe it as a big black dog that's following you everywhere and pulling you into complete darkness. It's like a dark, heavy cloud over you, over your head, and you can't see any light at all above you. It's like a circle-shaped dark room with no exit door, no windows. You feel tired being trapped in the darkness with no hope. You have no energy. You feel only indifference. You become negligent. You don't eat. You don't take showers. You don't exercise. I even had to give my cocker spaniel Bruno to friends for a few weeks because I was unable to take care of him. I was living in a fog. I was so disoriented by Michael's cruel behaviors and confusing actions. I couldn't handle even the most basic things like washing the dishes. 
And I experienced suicidal thoughts, as you know from the first episode here called What Does God Say About You? Are depression and suicidal thoughts unbiblical, ungodly, sinful? And are they new to God? In the Bible, Elijah was discouraged, weary, and afraid. After great spiritual victories, this mighty man of God feared and ran for his life. And there in the desert, he sat down and prayed, defeated and worn. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. Defeated and worn out. Elijah who knew God personally, who experienced so many victories with God. He was depressed and suicidal. 1 Kings 19.4 So neither depression nor suicidal thoughts are new under the sun. Depression is when you just lie in bed, stare at the ceiling for hours and hours, and you're pretty much checked out mentally. You're just indifferent. Nothing matters because there is no hope. The only way I found a path out of that long-lasting depression was to justify my feelings and the story of Elijah was so relatable for me. As he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. 1 Kings 19.5-7 Wow! Wow! I knew I was so depressed because the journey was so hard. It was too much for me. But also, as God was preparing Elijah for his next step in his journey with God, I knew God was also using my depression to equip and prepare me for my next step in my walk with Him. And that was very, very healing, even though in the moment it was painful. God's plan for Elijah was very simple. Rest and talk to God. That's what he did. That's why meditation, mindfulness, and sleep are so essential when battling depression. And here's the poem I wrote as the result of my depression. It's called, I Need Your Love. I'm hurt and overwhelmed, God. I feel weak and I need your strength. I need your help with the very basics of life. I can't do anything on my own anymore. I love you more than I love anyone else. I want to honor you more than I want anything. I ask for peace that passes all understanding. I need your love to comfort me with affection. The tenth feeling we'll be discussing is joy. 
Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. I'm learning to feel it again right now. <laughs> I will say that we all can find reasons to feel joy, even in the middle of hell, I promise you. I'm only saying it from experience. I felt profound joy walking down the aisle on May 14th last year, seeing Michael waiting for me there and crying as he looked me in the eye. And I felt profound joy taking care of him in the midst of his second divorce filing in our eight months of marriage. I want to share with you this poem I wrote, feeling overwhelming joy from just a simple trip to a sunflower farm on a sunny and then rainy day. It's called the Sunflower Day. Let me find it on my phone. It's a long one, so I don't have it printed out. Sorry. Hold on. God, thanks to you for life of beauty. Thanks to you for blue, clear sky. Thanks for gifting us with duty to honor you, follow, obey, and glorify. Thanks for healthy air we're breathing. Thanks for all the gorgeous trees. Thanks for flowers we can be admiring or seizing. Thanks for the hardworking and all important bees. Thanks for kayaks. Thanks for rivers. Thanks for trails and mountain hikes. Thanks for all the joy sun gives us. Thanks for running and for bikes. Thanks for healthy ears and vision. Thanks for moving arms and legs. Thanks for your abundant provision. Thanks for promoting us beyond just plebs. Thanks for making us your special children. Thanks for giving us your gorgeous world. Thanks for gifting us blessings a million. Thanks for every sunflower that today danced and whirled. Thanks for happiness and pleasure. Thanks for purpose and for cheer. Thanks for love that I so treasure and every smile it brings and every tear. Thanks for people, friendships, mentors. Thanks for guiding us with word. For every person who into my life enters, brings wisdom and with kindness enriches my world. What I have learned is that my joy comes from my faith and is fueled by my relationship with God. What fuels your joy? The next we'll be talking about grief, mourning, and weeping. Grief is deep sorrow, especially caused by someone's death. When you go through divorce, you must grieve the death of marriage, dreams, plans, and the overall relationship. You remember we talked in the beginning here about grief, how it works and how I learned to respect it and give it its time, space and attention. And most often grief doesn't ask for permission. Many times my friends held me in their arms as I wept. And the last time I remember it was in my new home with my friend Tara. I just wept unstoppably. And then I went to a wedding in Virginia. 
My two good friends were getting married. I was so happy and excited for them. I arrived in time for the rehearsal and dinner, and it was a very pleasant experience. I only felt joy, and I felt excitement, and I felt happiness for them. And I was asked to help with venue decoration the next morning for the actual wedding, which of course I agreed to do without even a second thought. I tell you, when I woke up on Saturday morning early, I couldn't wait to be there and decorate the venue for my friends whom I love so much. Until I arrived and walked in. The thing is that Michael and I planned and organized and prepared our own wedding last year. We decorated the venue on Friday before the ceremony and we did everything. I personally, with the help of my two good friends, cut roses, put together centerpieces. I bought myself all the vases, candles, candle holders, everything you can imagine. We did everything ourselves. I had my own arch designed right there from scratch. Everything in my venue I planned, designed, and personally touched. So when I walked into the venue to decorate their wedding in July this year, and I saw roses and vases and candles, I tell you, grief came without knocking. I couldn't breathe. I started weeping. My energy left my legs. I crashed on the floor and I wept and wept. I sure had some explanation to do, as you can imagine, because there were other women helping. And later on, one of them was so eager to set me up with a man, which I'll mention later. But the bride and groom didn't witness it, but they did know about it. And they told me it was totally normal, expected. And then they were even happy that I came, considering my devastating marriage circumstances at the time. I later wrote three goodbye letters that I'll share with you now. And after that, I feel I have more closure. Um, let's see here. Let me open this journal. Dear dating relationship with Michael, I never got to say goodbye. You were the best relationship in my entire life, cherishing, interesting, God-focused, attentive, loving, and honoring. You were also intentional and so special. You were short-lasting, but beautiful and very memorable. You were also captivating with all the amazing dates, jazz, high museums, shooting guns, cooking, picnics, church volunteering at North Point, all the interesting conversations, passion, compassion, and love. Goodbye. Dear Marriage with Michael, you were the worst experience of my entire life. Scary abusive, manipulative, devastating, depressing, and destroying. I'm relieved that we are now saying goodbye. I'm certain that I have done everything I could to save you and improve you, but it was just not possible with my effort alone. It would require two. You were so short-lived, unstable, unpredictable, satanic, worldly, expansive, 
purposeless and overall very painful. You took a huge toll on my sanity and mental health, as well as financial well-being. I am delighted to say goodbye to you. Goodbye. Dear Michael, thank you for all the great experiences as my boyfriend and fiancé. Thank you for all the terrible and devastating experiences as my husband. The first ones helped me feel special and fall in love with you. The latter helped me grow in pain and lean on Jesus for daily healing and sanity. While you feel like a glorious winner, I doubt that you feel either freedom or joy, but I pray for your peace and salvation and your eternal healing. I've loved you with all my heart. I was committed to you fully, but today I am saying goodbye forever. I am moving on. Goodbye. So these three letters were written on August 18th. It was Thursday, the last fourth day of our divorce jury trial. And when I came home, I went to the river. I sat there and I wrote these letters. So what about you? What is it that you need to grieve? What is it that you need to mourn? And what is it that you need to weep over? Can you take that time for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your human experience? Can you allow yourself to grieve the pain of your journey? Can you mourn it and can you weep? Crying is not easy. You know it was not easy for me. I, will, I remember after I left that second husband of mine, before I became a Christian and gave my life to Jesus, I remember I lived at a beautiful place with fountains and waterfalls, and I remember walking there on a the beautiful bridge, looking up and just saying, God, are you going to let me cry? Make me cry. And there wasn't even one tear. The 12th emotion we'll be discussing today is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation is blaming oneself. I have a good recent example from a beautiful friend whom we call Elena. Remember, we agreed that's her fake name, but okay, Elena. She gave me permission to share this one with you. She's very young and had never been pulled over before by a police officer. But this week, she accidentally was speeding without noticing it, and a police officer was following her to stop her. She didn't realize it at first, and so she kept driving, which didn't look good from the officer's perspective, of course. He basically had to chase her. You can imagine that she surely got a ticket, and then she went on and on for hours and hours, blaming herself for being stupid, to even speed up unknowingly, to not realize the officer was chasing her, and on and on. I felt this way too in my life. Have you ever felt that way? The best course of action to escape the vicious cycle of never-ending self-condemnation is to reach out for God's grace. I told her, it's okay to feel stupid. It's okay to be stupid. It's okay to make mistakes. We all make them. 
Of course, it's easier said than done, because for months I was dwelling on my own self-condemnation for saying mean things to Michael when he hurt me. And then I realized I'm imperfect. That's why God sent Jesus to die on a cross for me. There all my faults have been washed white as snow, and I can accept His grace and move on. I forgive myself because God forgave me when I asked Him for forgiveness. I also, of course, asked Michael for forgiveness, and while he never gave it to me, confessing my sins to him, like God says, confess your sins to one another, and repenting from my sins was literally what God asked me to do, and so I did. Remember, the actions of others, whether they give you forgiveness or not, they don't matter to your relationship with God and your eternity. Whether you ask for forgiveness, confess and repent, is the only thing that matters to your relationship with God and your eternity. In the Bible, David wrote in Psalm 38:4, My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Can you relate? Have you forgiven yourself for your mistakes? Or are you still carrying the heavy, overwhelming burden of your guilt that you cannot bear? Have you reached out for God's amazing grace? Have you released your guilt? Have you accepted the gift of righteousness from Jesus who gave up his precious life to free us from our own sin? This was huge for me also because as Anna Stevens, which was my name before I took Michael's last name last year, I was a high achiever who would have never stayed in that miserable house enduring all kinds of abuse from Michael. Anna Stevens would have never been caring for her sick abuser husband. I felt that after all, Anna Stevens betrayed... I'm sorry, I felt that Anna Zabel betrayed Anna Stevens. It took a lot of work on my knees, praying to God, crying out, searching the Bible for answers and experiencing compassion for Anna Zabel, who deeply loved her husband, whom she was very committed to and didn't want to give up on him and was persevering in faith the way God asked us to. That allowed for self-understanding and self-acceptance. And that's when I wrote this letter. It's called, Dear Anna Zabel. Let me share it with you. Dear Anna Zabon, it's been nice meeting you. I apologize to you for seeing you as a depressed, worthless, hopeless, powerless, abandoned, betrayed, angry, and foolish woman who's been traded in for a bicycle. I now know you as a princess, beautifully and wonderfully made in the image of God, very faithful woman, committed, kind, always seeking to be a better wife. I respect you. I respect you for what you've endured in order to save your marriage. And while for a year I judged you as foolish and simple, 
I do now understand that you stayed in this house and endured so much because you wanted to honor your vows to God and to love your husband through the good and the bad. I thought of you as a woman who never knows where her underwear, jewelry, hair products, or contact lenses are because all my stuff has always been in order. I also considered you a disorganized, lazy messmaker who can lie flat in bed while the dishes need to be washed and the laundry needs to be taken care of. I apologize for that. Because I see you now as a woman who sacrificed and persevered through so much, never gave up on her marriage, cared for her sick husband who abused her enduring so, so much while choosing the husband and the marriage as her priority, driving a hundred miles a day, five hours in traffic, five days a week to make a living, and being simply exhausted. I've learned that you are a woman who received mercy and grace from God and has consistently given mercy and grace to her husband. I've learned how much time you've invested into saving this marriage, being there for your husband, working on this 1,800 square feet house alone all the time, being served with the divorce papers twice by staying faithful and committed and never giving up until on the day of the mediation you've been asked to leave. You stayed and endured. I've learned how handy you are. Installing rods, shelves, painting, putting furniture together. And the whole LED lights in your new home is just an incredible project. I admire you. I respect you. I understand you. I accept you. And I love you. You are a woman of strength that is not fake but real. The power of vulnerability in you may be and has been perceived by me specifically as weakness and even craziness. But your ability to grieve and your willingness to feel the pain is what I never allowed in me. And so I turned to alcohol, shopping, sex, etc., etc. But your submission to Jesus and your desire to serve Him, allowing Him to prepare you, to prune you through this pain so you can be more fruitful, this ability is the strength that will help you help others in God's kingdom. It's what makes your heart a heart of flesh, enables you to feel empathy for others, which I understand now is another reason why you had been so out of energy and joy. I ask you to forgive me for my judgments toward you, for wanting you to be like me. I love you, I accept you, and I forgive you. Anna Stevens. I wrote this letter to myself on May 14th, 2017. It was one year wedding anniversary. And 
As a symbol of my self-compassion, self-acceptance, and self-forgiveness, I printed out a canvas of my last picture of Anna Stevens and my first picture of Anna Zabel. Of course, it's one picture. It's my wedding picture at Perimeter Church. I have it right above my fireplace here at home. I'll post the picture on annasabel.com feel so you can see it. Seeing this picture daily for me is very healing. And by the way, writing that acceptance letter from Anna Stevens to Anna Zabel was very healing for me. The 13th feeling we'll be discussing is commitment. Commitment is the state of being dedicated. I can tell you right now that facing all the nonsense from Michael, I wanted to run for my life. I wanted to hide somewhere on the other planet from him and just forget what happened to me. So a couple of times my sorrow and sadness, anxiety and stress forced me to stay with my former mentor from Bucket Church, my new mentor and her husband and two young children. But doing the love there and learning from Christian books how to love sacrificially with agape love I was able to develop such a commitment to my marriage and my husband that even when in August Michael started asking me to move out, that's last year, I told him only if we get divorced. I was not willing to out of the blue abandon my marriage just because his promises and his basically priorities in life switched from marriage to Iron Man. I lived out my commitment to Michael and to God as the three of us entered into this marriage last year, and I wore my rings until my attorney informed me that we were no longer married and we were divorced, which she only did on September 18th, um, but the papers said that we were divorced on August 30th, so I actually wore my rings beyond our divorce date. So many men have been trying to make their moves on me, and I never even thought about the possibility of going out. Remember at the wedding in Virginia in July this year, a woman was chasing me with her boyfriend offer? That was one persistent woman, I tell you. My answer was, a no, I love my husband. Every time. No, I love my husband. And she was like, what are you talking about? We know what he did to you. No, I love my husband. What he did to me doesn't have anything to do with my commitment to him and to our marriage. I never ever in my life had such a sense of dedication to anyone and I cheated on both of my two ex-husbands before I gave my life to Jesus. So this experience of not just feeling but practicing and living out my commitment to Michael and to God in this marriage was transformational for me as a human being on earth. I'm so grateful for it. I grew closer in my relationship with God because of my dedication to Michael and our marriage, no matter his actions as my husband. And it's only been healing for me. And remember, only your actions are important as you prepare for your eternity. Others' actions don't matter to your relationship with God. Everything I learned, practiced, applied in my life, everything I felt in my heart and expressed, in my marriage, I summarized in this poem, and it's called Marriage. 
Marriage is a covenant and a forever union made by God to last for eternity. It's a creation of an ongoing communion where each is led by God to achieve maturity. Marriage is a daily hard work commitment that requires selfless and intentional sacrifice, challenges us to give each other biblical treatment, encourage one another at our own ego price. Marriage calls us to love unconditionally, to give continuously and to not expect anything. To be close friends, it calls us additionally, and in the process, to God cling. Marriage is a journey toward godly holiness. It's a pursuit of one another along with Christ. And because marriage daily exposes our own brokenness, we can't do it without remembering Jesus' sacrifice. What about your commitment? Is your commitment driven by the actions of the other person? Your commitment needs to be reflected upon with the eyes of God and what God asks of you. The 14th emotion we'll be discussing is being left out, feeling left out. To feel left out is to not be included and to actually be excluded. In a marriage with Michael, from the moment we said I do, he excluded me from his whole life, every day. I noticed it gradually, but even when I did, I tried to persuade myself that this was just difficult first year of marriage everyone goes through and that it all will be okay soon. Except one afternoon I came home from work. Literally, I walk into my home, into my kitchen. Michael is talking to his family on video call on his laptop at a table, not even saying hello or acknowledging me or inviting me to talk to them or say hi to them. Michael's family is from Venezuela, which is where he grew up. They came here to Atlanta for a wedding in May, and I never saw them since then. Of course, they all speak Spanish. I only speak English and Russian. So as I walked in, he was saying something at which they all started laughing. And that was a very painful experience and a very painful feeling of not mattering being excluded, being made fun of, not even being invited to say hi to this new family of mine. It was right after we got married. It was really hard for me to acknowledge how much being left out by Michael affected me. I guess on this whole journey of learning to feel, I have also been learning to just acknowledge I was left out. I am in pain. Because for a while I was trying to forget it and to avoid my pain. And it never worked. It was never helpful. Do you have a heavy heart from pain remembering being completely left out by either your family or a loved one? Have you ever acknowledged the pain? Have you allowed it? Have you faced it? Have you felt it? Have you processed it? 
And after you face your pain, remember to give grace to your offender. Really, that's the secret. So grace is next on our list. Last year, this very day, my girlfriend and I went um, out on a hike with our two dogs. And then we had a picnic and studied a book called Grace Walk by Steve McVeigh. At the time, I was in a care ministry, a women's leadership training at Brownsbridge Church in Cumming, where Michael and I lived um, after our wedding. I was learning to give Michael the same grace as I received from Jesus. Not easy at all. Not easy. Not even easy to think about it. But I wrote this poem about grace that God called us to receive and give. It's called Jesus Calling and Presence. You called us to confess, repent, and seek forgiveness. You called us to rejoice and go the second mile. Of your amazing grace, I've never been a witness and want to follow you with genuine desire. You called us not to lust and father slow to honor, our enemies to love and practice self-control. With your amazing life established you this manner, you bled and died for me to free me. I'm sorry, to free from sin my soul. You ask us to be servants, to pray in faith and sureness that you will hear our crying and answer every time. You ask us not to doubt and demonstrate matureness so others come to you observing us in prime. For gift of my salvation, to you I'm very grateful. I want to honor you and patiently obey. In trials and tribulations, I am remaining faithful, remembering you're near and never far away. And that's the grace we received from Jesus. And so then the question is, can we give this same grace to others. I want to share this story with you. Moving into our uh, marital residence, after the wedding and just being left alone there in the middle of unfinished construction with boxes and mess everywhere, I felt homeless, overwhelmed by stuff. It was really hard to clean, so it was always messy. Well, not always, for a while it was messy. And I judged Michael for that. When I moved out and was settling in my new home, I was so severely depressed that it was hard for me to put this home together. I had stuff everywhere. It was hard to clean. It was messy. I looked around one day and asked, Girl, why do you continue feeling homeless and being homeless? Why don't you set up your new home? Why can't you put it together now? And the answer was that for the season of life I was in, this, what I was giving myself, was indeed the best I had, the best I could give at the time. Realizing that, knowing that, yes, with confidence I can say, it was true. I didn't think it looked good, but this was my best at the time. I asked myself, 
What if the mess you got from Michael was his, his bestest as best for the season of life he was in? And that allowed me to experience so much empathy, compassion, and grace for Michael. Just what God gives me every day. Have you received God's grace? Do you feel loved, accepted, and forgiven? Do you give the same grace to people in your life? The next feeling on our list, number 16, is clarity. Clarity is the state of being clear-minded. The opposite of clarity is being foggy-minded, full of doubt. The other word to describe that I uh, saw on a text message that Michael received while in the car with me from his best friend who said, your wifey is brain scattered. To which Michael replied, nothing to defend his wife. <laughs> and I remember I looked at him and I was so puzzled that he didn't think much of it at all that his friend said that your wifey is brain scattered. And I said, Michael, what are you going to do? What are you going to say to him to defend me? And he said, nothing. I'm not going to say anything. Yet brain scattered, of course, I was from all the mental cruelty I endured. Before I married Michael, I was always very clear and focused. I had clarity regarding my identity, my life, my future, my purpose. The more I was mentally manipulated by Michael, the less clarity I had left in me. The more confusion there was, brain scatteredness and foggy-mindedness. Clarity is such a blessing. I'm learning from this experience of depression and fogginess. Clarity prevents doubt. Clarity entices us to take action. Like with this podcast, it was tough. I was about to doubt myself. And then I said, no, you're going to take action. There are people who need to hear this. You will help them. So you see that I've taken that action from clarity. The more you heal from hurts, the more you will experience clarity revival. Where do you like like clarity today? And what steps can you take to get back into clear, confusion-free state of mind? Start with gratitude and praise God for wherever you are. He will guide you from there to where He wants you to be. If you surrender, Here's a poem I wrote as I was gaining my clarity back, recovering from the mental cruelty endured in this marriage. It's called, God, I praise you. God, I praise you with my words and thoughts. Glory to you for all your goodness. I'm in awe to see blessing slots. I reach out to you for life's fullness. Satisfaction comes from finding grace. You reveal the path in the Bible. For your truth and wisdom, I shout praise. I worship you, experiencing clarity revival. God, I praise you for the good and the bad. For all my trials and tribulations, I praise you when happy and when I'm sad. For both my accomplishments and frustrations, I praise you, God. It's my act of worship.
I feel your love and I'm soaking in it. Getting to know you is like courtship. The closer you draw me, the more I commit. So you heard that a lot of my clarity came back as I've been practicing gratitude. And so gratitude is next on our list. Gratitude is a state of mind hard to achieve when your life is falling apart right before your eyes. It takes two things. First, you must decide to find things to be grateful for every day, even if it's only one or two things. And secondly, you must make gratitude your daily habit. It's not easy. Going through depression and enduring mental cruelty at home, I will tell you gratitude was an essential tool I used in my marriage with Michael to just stay alive. My depression was really severe and finding things to be grateful for was difficult initially. but. They don't have to be big things, you know, start wherever you are and go from there. And so just to give you an example, here are like real life examples from my gratitude journal. So let me open that up. I call it gratitude journal. <laughs> I'm grateful for my mental health. And physical energy, waking up with focus on my priorities, being able to take a punch in the face and come back stronger from this divorce, my premarital counseling mentors and their meaningful friendship and mentorship, Perimeter Church and the community it provides, yesterday's sermon on how God causes adversity, the glorious grace, God's amazing grace that's sufficient for me. The trials and temptations He sends my way to grow me. My neoconsistent exercise routine. My walking routine. My ability to make a beautiful meal and enjoy it. My comfort with being alone and at peace. My cozy bed and all my pillows and good night's sleep. My own space where I feel safe and at ease. My friend Candace, who let me stay with her until late last night, printing out my, um, my art. <sighs> my journaling routine that helps with clarity. Jesus, in whom I put all my trust and who carries me when I can't walk on my own. It was July 17th, 2017. These are very simple things. <laughs> Being grateful for good night's sleep and my exercise routine. These are simple things in my life now, but they were super huge things before. It was not easy to even wake up and think what I needed to do, like brush my teeth, for example. So as a result of practicing gratitude, I wrote this gratitude poem that I wanted to share with you. And it's called, My life is such a gift. My life is such a gift. 
My life is such a blessing. I'm grateful for each day which I'm with joy professing. I'm grateful for the peace. I'm grateful that I'm healthy. For joy that may not cease and being friendships wealthy. I'm grateful for abundance of food and drinking water and clothing choices hundreds and being God's loved daughter. My life is very special and I am special also. I have a high potential. With scriptures armed, I know so. <laughs> I love this poem. Not, not the usual way for me to feel about my life. I just love and adore it. So the next feeling we'll be discussing is obsession. Obsession is a huge one for me. Obsession is a persistent, disturbing preoccupation with an often unreasonable idea or feeling. Remember my friend Elina from New York? Here's the example she gave me uh, permission to share with you. She went to a public bathroom and there was nasty mess there. So she tried to clean it up and what happened to her afterwards is a very good example of obsession. Elena went about her day thinking about all the bacteria that was now possibly on her clothes, shoes, purse, things inside the purse and on her body. We ended up having a long conversation about the situation and her obsession which is when I asked her if I could use this as an example for you today. My own memorable example of obsession is when I saw that Michael stained the white leather dining chair I bought for our dining room. And I was so upset. I couldn't let it go. It was very unreasonable. And I kept the stained chair. I keep it now in my dining room as a reminder to myself of how I don't want to show up in the world. Right now, I am in a woman's discipleship group at Perimeter Church, and we meet in a beautiful house that one of the women in the discipleship group owns. Let's call her Natalie. It's not her real name, of course. <laughs> so the first time we had a meeting at Natalie's house, I sat on a chase lounge chair and I spilled my mint ginger tea on a chair. Oh my God, I was devastated. Natalie's reaction was grace. She made me feel so comfortable and said, don't worry about it, you're in the right house. And that was so encouraging, but also made me think, has my house been the right house to make guests feel comfortable and give people grace? No. Recently, a friend came over with a puppy and dog threw up on my wool rug. It was a huge mess and I continued smiling and truly enjoying the company. And while I did clean it eventually, the stain didn't go away and I kept the rug to remind myself how far I have come since last year in my character development and growth as a follower of Jesus Christ. My goal is not to fight my obsession. My goal is to recognize it, acknowledge it, and calm it with mindfulness, such as being present in those relationships and remembering what the purpose of my life is, remembering who I am 
and why I'm here. I have to remind myself that keeping things stain-free is the least priority in my life. People are so much more important. What about you? Have you ever experienced a persistent, disturbing preoccupation with an often unreasonable idea or feeling? How do you go about it? What do you do when you feel obsessed? Obsession can also be a result of anxiety. So anxiety is next on our list. Number 19. Anxiety is an abnormal and overwhelming sense of apprehension, meaning something bad or unpleasant will happen. And it's often marked by physical signs such as tension, sweating, and increasing pulse rate. Anxiety feels like restlessness and tension to me. I can't sleep. I can't focus on anything. I feel severe worry, and there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. Anxiety is easy to imagine as freaking out quietly on the inside. Anxiety can cause headaches, diarrhea, insomnia, and make you really sick. I felt a non-stop anxiety living with Michael. And there were times I couldn't even breathe from anxiety. Prayer and meditation on scriptures is my best advice to anyone feeling anxiety. Philippians 4, 6, 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. In the Bible, David was often troubled and battled deep despair and anxiety. In many of the Psalms, he writes of his mental suffering, loneliness, fear of the enemy, his heart cry over sin, and the guilt he struggled with because of it. I struggled with the most anxiety in my life preparing for this four-day divorce jury trial we had a few weeks ago. It felt like crucifixion to me and was truly the most profoundly humiliating experience in my 34 years on earth. But remember that Jesus also had anxiety. He asked God, what? He said, take this cup away, but not my will, your will be done. And that's what I said also to God. I kept my case for marriage journal going and writing there my prayers and based on scriptures, my opinion on how God should save my marriage. But I said, your will, not my will be done. And so I surrendered to his will at the end. What about you? What does anxiety feel like in your body? How do you address your anxiety? You can share with me about your anxiety or any other feelings at anazabo.com slash feel. So the next feeling we'll be talking about, number 20, is panic attacks. A panic attack is the abrupt onset of intense fear or discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes and includes pounding heart, sweating, shaking, 
or sensations of shortness of breath or suffocation. Mm. A panic attack feels like a lot of anxiety rushing through your body at 10,000 miles per hour, causing tension in your neck, forehead, shoulders, and stomach. That's what it feels like to me. For me, it's also always that suffocation mentioned earlier. And when I had to testify in my own divorce court for days, seeing my husband, whom I married last year, with love, lie and lie over and over, change his testimony, and play just another mental manipulation game, I had a panic attack multiple times a day. Panic attacks are paralyzing and debilitating. They're also humiliating. You can't speak. And sitting on a witness stand in front of 14 jurors, the judge, attorneys, court reporter, and all the visitors we had every day in Forsyth County, and you're being publicly suffocated in front of them. That's what happened to me. The way I dealt with this, since you can't escape or prevent panic attacks, I just relax into each of them. I recognize, acknowledge, and breathe through my every panic attack. And I still have them. What about you? Have you ever experienced one? Were you embarrassed? Try relaxing into a panic attack next time instead of fighting it. And be okay to experience public humiliation like I did. It can happen to anyone. Don't be stressed out by it. So the next on our list is stress, number 21. I was previously in my life not willing to feel stress. I was a high achiever who never recognized her limits. I just drank a lot of alcohol and had a lot of sex when I needed to push through a lot in life. It's unhealthy in every and any way. Dealing with stress productively starts first with recognizing what stress feels like to you. Then you can manage it. So what is stress anyway? It's a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. For example, narcissistic abuse, mental cruelty, domestic violence, or being overworked in some aspects of life, or testifying in court, those things will cause stress. To me, stress causes muscle tension, stomach aches, and ability to do number two, causes because of it rectal bleeding, insomnia, lack of self-awareness, and loss of perspective. What about you? What does stress feel like in your body? What does it look like on the outside? One example is that producing content for this very podcast episode caused me a lot of stress because sharing my feelings is the least thing I ever would want to do. This content had been so painful to share with you and I have been stressed out by preparing this episode and then 
so many things popped up. You know, I was supposed to release this podcast on Saturday. Right now, it's 12.46 a.m. Monday morning. So we, I'm going from Sunday to Monday, and I've been sitting here on the floor in my closet all this time recording this podcast. It's been stressful. It's been stressful to share vulnerably and openly and honestly. And you know that I give you this podcast unedited. So with all my crying and all my vulnerability, I'm going to push the publish button and it's yours. That's what God asked me to do. I hope it's of value to you. And if it is, please help others find this content by posting your review wherever you're listening, whichever app you're using to listen to my podcast. So knowing stress symptoms, I recognize easily I am stressed out. And I either pray to God, do my squats, journal, meditate, or go for a walk with my beautiful, sweet, cocky spaniel Bruno. How do you manage your stress? On the inside and the outside. The next feeling on our list is contentment, number 22. Contentment is a state of either satisfaction or just mere acceptance. I shared with you that initially in our marriage, I deposited my entire paycheck into our joint checking account and it was gone. $300 on a $6,000 bicycle repair, $300 on a new iPhone for Michael, $74 on fast food at once, $500 to ship a bicycle to the Ironman competition in Canada, and on and on. Different clubs, memberships, fitness memberships, training memberships, jackets, towels, everything. And so who cares that mortgage is unpaid, right? So in September, once I discovered all the unpaid bills, and after three times I was left with no money to pay for food, I rerouted my paycheck back to my own checking account that I had before we got married. I was not giving Carlos Michael any money, and instead I focused on paying off the debt we took on to remodel our marital residence. It was Michael's house. It was worth $146,000 last February, and it is worth $230,000 today. He kept it all. So while Michael continued his reckless lifestyle and his new shoes and clothes were delivered to the house weekly, he took a trip to... Uh, Donald Trump's inauguration and he was just doing whatever he wanted I decided to completely be content with sacrificing what I wanted and needed to focus on honoring God and my marriage by paying off that debt which I did in Philippians 4 12 13 Paul says I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Him who gives me strength. Wow. 
contentment is a choice. Paul believed he will be taken care of while in prison, and at the time prisoners were only getting support from their family and friends. I was content believing that God will take care of my every need. It might not look like what I want or think I need, but I trust that His plan is bigger and better than my plan. This allows for clarity instead of that constant self-doubt and foggy mindness. Discontent leads to loss of clarity and causes dissatisfaction, bitterness, and resentment. In which area of your life do you recognize discontent right now? Where do you need to decide to choose contentment? How can you make that decision to feel content by trusting God's plan? The next feeling on our list is humiliation. Mm. Let me drink some water. That was a tough one. Today, we'll be to- we were talking about it in my discipleship group. <laughs> and just for the record, I could have never imagined that I would be publicly like this, talking about my humiliation. <laughs> and the reason why I do, well, not willingly, kind of God forced me to do it for you, But I do agree to do it, and I'm about to do it, because I believe it's going to help you so much. Trying to avoid humiliation, fighting humiliation, and the self-condemnation we experience for being humiliated is something that causes us depression, anxiety, and that vicious cycle that we just need to stop. It's not helpful. Being humiliated is unavoidable in life. There will be unpredictable humiliation experiences like public panic attacks, for example, when you testify in court in front of all those people. And there will be very predictable humiliation experiences, like when your husband of four months files for divorce twice in the eight-month marriage period and you have to go tell the world what happened during your wedding night. humiliating. Preparing to testify about our wedding night in front of jurors and the judge, I had many panic attacks in advance. And it was not anything I could have avoided, so I focused on Jesus instead. Jesus was rejected by his own people in favor of Barabbas, a criminal. Barabbas couldn't even believe what happened when he realized that he was let go. He was like, who is this Jesus guy? He's going to be now crucified instead of me. He was then spat upon. That's Jesus, not Barabbas. Jesus was then spat upon, beaten and mocked by the Roman soldiers. Enduring the ultimate form of humiliation, Jesus Christ was crucified while being mocked. Thinking about that, I was able to accept the humiliation I had already endured in my marriage with Michael and all the upcoming humiliation I was about to go through during the jury trial in August this year. Knowing that Jesus understands my humiliation 
can relate to it, can relate to how I feel in it, and that he himself experienced it to set me free and give me a life of peace, I was so comforted. I'm sure you want to know what happened during our wedding night. It was terrible. Michael and I had, of course, our first intercourse, and he just basically went for it without taking any time or any preparation. I was bleeding. I had to go to the doctor right away, and I was put on antibiotics. And for 10 days, I had to wear an adult diaper to work. What about your humiliation? Have you ever acknowledged it? Have you ever accepted your humiliation? Have you ever received comfort from Jesus Christ who was humiliated to give you a life of peace? The next emotion on our list, 24, is passion and enthusiasm. Passion and enthusiasm are very good feelings. Remember how much enthusiasm Jesus felt and showed, actually, and verbalized when eating with his disciples? We talked about it earlier in this podcast episode. I am a very passionate person, but I do recognize that before I married Michael, I did not actually know how to love anyone. I've never been loved by anyone except God, and I thought... I did know how to love, but I sure didn't. Remember the love there test that I took? And by the way, if you want to share your love uh, test score with me, tell me what it is on anasabo.com slash feel. I want to know how are you doing on your love skills. <laughs> and what the love I mean when I'm asking you that is unconditional agape love, sacrificial love. Anyway... <laughs> Learning um, how to love Michael, I felt so much genuine passion for him. Just as a human in my life, the person God gave me to love unconditionally. And even though I suffered extensively for my passion, I would do it all over again. Learning how to love Michael was so worth it to me. Remember how Jesus verbalized his passion and enthusiasm during that meal with his disciples? I did that too during our trial. You heard me right. Like during our divorce jury trial, I verbalized my passion and love for Michael. I shared how much I loved him with all my heart. On a witness stand, I did that. It was humiliating and liberating all at the same time. When we keep eternal perspective on life and our walk with God, humiliation is almost irrelevant because people's judgments don't matter to our eternity. But liberation from our own ego, anger, self-judgment, self-condemnation, condemnation of others, and fear, those matter to our eternity. And for me to say publicly, looking at him in trial, that I genuinely love him, it was truly the next level of human experience for me. What about you? Do you verbalize and express your passion and enthusiasm for people you love? Preventing our liberation is fear, 
which is next on our list. Number 25. Fear is often what drives anxiety or even depression. It is an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous and likely to cause pain. I read to do some of my I read you some of my worries today from the journal so that was all fear based right Often we can also obsess about our irrational fears it doesn't mean all our fears are irrational of course but some of them are truly irrational I was devastated with fear living with Michael who was acting crazy and unpredictable at all times and threatened me multiple times threatened me saying I need you to leave this house that was right after we got married or something really bad will happen to you like my sister and I asked him what happened to your sister and he's like you don't want to know and then he threatened me multiple times Anyway, after he told many people at Highlands Church in coming, as well as the pastor who officiated our wedding, that his plan was to divorce me to date me again, I have some serious fears, I tell you. I promise you, I have fears every day, like right now. So the first thing I did when I moved to my new home is I went to the local police department right away and I told them about my situation with Michael and all the divorces and all his threats and we made a plan. I also installed video cameras to watch over my every window at home and that records in the cloud 24-7. And once you take actions to mitigate the threats and the risks, the only antidote for fear I know is courage and empowerment. Second Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power. Please listen to the last week's podcast episode on the topic of empowerment and courage called Empowering Women. So courage is next on our list. Number 26, courage. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens one. I had fear of flying and so I went and I did skydiving. And I will link to my full skydiving video and the whole entire experience at annasabo.com slash feel. I also had a fear of fire, so I will share with you a video where I swallow fire. <sighs> I had a fear of Michael, and so I stayed in that house to love him and to be committed to him despite my fear. Interestingly, Michael's attorney presented to the divorce jury um, and the judge in our Forsyth County Divorce Court my posts on social media where I expressed my love for Michael openly after he abused me and threatened me and called me names. And so on December 5th, I had to move out for two weeks to stay with my girlfriend to even put my head back together. I was paralyzed by fear. His attorney's thesis on that was 
that if I were truly afraid of Michael, I wouldn't say a nice thing about him. I'm just going to let you decide for yourself what you think about that. I don't know what to say in response to such nonsense. I love Michael. Even now, right now, I love Michael. Every day I pray for him. Of course I'm scared of him and his crazy psycho actions. And at the same time, I say nice things about him. But I also speak truth and love about his abusive, raging, angry actions toward me and all the mental cruelty I endured. So, anger is next on our list. Number 27. Anger experts describe the emotion as a primary natural emotion which has evolved as a way of surviving and protecting yourself from what is considered a wrongdoing. What's anger in the Bible? Is that, remember the description when Jesus expressed his anger against injustice? The kind of anger I endured from Michael, I'll share in detail next week in the next podcast episode. Let's talk about me and you now feeling anger on the inside. I know when I'm getting angry, I raise my voice, I become defensive, I want to scream, I feel self-righteous. Not good, that's not how I want to show up in the world. What about you? What does anger feel like on the inside for you? And what does it look like on the outside? As a vacillator, I had anger as my primary emotion for years. But after sending middle middle finger text to Michael as my husband last year, accompanied by really mean words, I shared all of this with you in earlier podcast episodes, I just started seriously thinking where that anger was coming from and is this how I want to show up in the world as God's precious, special, chosen child? No, it is not. Not at all. So in preparation for our trial, I was asking God to read me of my anger, fill my heart with love and compassion and empathy and grace for Michael. Enable me to be humble and kind every day on a witness stand and even when I was humiliated and lied against. To remain, to remain anger-free, humble and kind was my prayer. And God gave me that. I'm so grateful. Remember, the actions of others do not impact your relationship with God and your eternity. Your actions do. You have a choice every time someone angers you or offends you to either walk in the Spirit and obey God's commands on how to address it or walk in the flesh. Certainly, in my marriage with Michael, when I was sending him mean text messages in response to his hurt, I was choosing to walk in the flesh, not in the spirit. I was not obeying God. By the way, when I say walk in the spirit um, and die to your flesh, if you don't know what that even means, please go ahead and ask me, anazeba.com slash feel, 
and I'll explain in detail. It's a very important concept of our daily living. James 1, 19, 20 teaches us, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. How do you manage your anger? If you desire to honor and glorify God, reflect on how you express your anger and ask yourself, is my behavior giving God the glory He deserves and the glory I want to give Him? Number 28, defensiveness. Defensiveness is the best way to get yourself into deep anger. I had to defend myself since five years old, even from my family members. When as a teen I was raped, my mom said, good for you, you are now more sexually experienced than your peers. So I had to go and find a way to defend myself from those guys, which I did. But growing up, having to always defend yourself, you become a very defensive adult, you know? That's what I'm working on right now. Whoever thinks whatever about me, they are free to think that. I allow it to them. I don't have to defend myself. I don't need to defend myself. If someone offends me, like Michael, for example, after watching him live for three days in court, I was able to say to myself, there is no need to continue defending your rights because he says lies and changes his testimony every hour and you try to combat that with what's true. Just let it go. And that gave me peace. Do you often feel defensive because you want to establish justice? Psalm 43 says, Establish justice for me, God. Argue my case against ungodly people. Rescue me from the dishonest and unjust, because you are my God, my protective fortress. And that became my prayer. How about you? Do you believe that God will establish justice in all your cases? Or do you believe defensiveness will? The opposite of anger and defensiveness are humbleness and kindness. Coming next, number 29. Humbleness and kindness. <laughs> Humble and kind is my favorite country song. Are you familiar with it? <laughs> Let me try to sing it to you. I don't know. Should I sing? Should I not sing? Okay, here it is. Hold the door, say please, say thank you. Don't steal, don't cheat, don't lie. I know you got mountains to climb, but always stay humble and kind. <laughs> so, this has been my alarm clock ringtone since I married Michael. I had to pray that through all this pain, God will allow me to become and remain humble and kind and not bitter, resentful, cynical, or angry. 
Here's the prayer poem I wrote to God to reflect my desire for more humbleness and kindness. It's called, Lord, I need you. It is literally what I pray every morning. Lord, I need you every moment, every hour of every day. I need your guidance, your mercy. Hold on to me tight. I need you to never let go of me as I pray. I need you to lead me, to renew me and help me stay humble and kind. Every morning I start with my list of gratitude, God. Every day I realize my weakness and your strength in it. Every moment I reach out for you because I never forgot that I need you. Without you, I've already reached my limit. What about you? Have you asked God for humbleness and kindness instead of resentment and anger and bitterness? And being humble and kind when others mistreat you gives peace because only your actions matter to your eternity and your relationship with God. Doing the right thing, no matter what others do to you. So number 30 is peace. Colossians 3.15 says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. I had very little peace going through moving in, being abandoned, abused, two divorces, moving out, all in a few months of my life. And here's a story for you. I told you how in that marital residence I felt homeless in the midst of unfinished construction. Well, so I moved out, I moved here where I live now, and I became... I was again in the middle of unfinished construction. My toilet had leakage, so my floors had to be pulled and replaced. In the meantime, my washer and dryer broke. They had to be replaced. I had a ceiling falling on my head, and it had to be fixed. And my master bathroom bathtub paint popped. So my dog Bruna and I were moved to a hotel for them to work on my master bathroom. I was given a budget to go to a hotel, and I could choose any hotel I wanted in a specific chain, but there are many of them here in Atlanta. So I read reviews, and I chose a good place, or as I thought so. Bruna and I walk in, and you would not believe it. I could not believe my eyes. It was in the midst of major construction. Walls, floors, everything was being replaced. Dust everywhere. Oh, and you know what? It made me realize that God might not be changing my unfinished construction circumstances that follow me wherever I went, accompanied with my feeling of homelessness. Because God might have a plan to change me in those circumstances. 
And that's when I made the decision to reach out for God and tap into His peace no matter what was happening outside of me and my body. And I did that. Here's what I wrote on May 26 this year, 2017, as I was settling in my new home and going through this second season of divorce, preparing for trial. Peace comes from within us. Even when the world around us is falling apart, we can still find peace. God called us to live a life of peace while He said we will have troubles in this world. On this journey of seeking peace, I'm learning that peace is like a Christmas gift under the tree with my name on it. I can reach out and grab it and have it. It will be mine because it already is waiting to be mine. Or I can never reach out for it, never take the gift, and it won't be mine. It's up to me. Peace is available to me anytime, anywhere. My name is written on the gift. All I need is to recognize it and reach out to get the gift. So is your peace available to you any moment. Just reach out for it and enjoy it. And so as a result of this learning experience, I wrote this poem to God. It's called Your God's Peace. Your peace rules now in my heart with love and joy and full devotion. I don't pursue or seek it hard. From abiding in you comes the sacred emotion. I make every effort to live in peace with everyone, but I fail often. From condemnation with mercy me you release. Through the humbling journey my heart you soften. I cast my anxieties on you in prayer because you care and your son for me you sacrificed. I don't do wrong for wrong and evade every naysayer. Your peace guards my mind and heart in Jesus Christ. That was vulnerable. So the 31 on our list is vulnerability. According to author Brene Brown, if you know her, she is the popular um, TED Talk vulnerability woman uh, who created the TED Talk on the power of vulnerability and just took off and went viral. So in her latest book, Daring Greatly, How the Courage to be Vulnerable Transforms the Way We Live, Love, Parent, and Lead, vulnerability is defined as the core, the heart, the center of meaningful human experience. She defines vulnerability as uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Think about the vulnerability it takes to love someone unconditionally, with agape love, sacrificially. To be honest with a friend, to cry in your small group. In my woman's small group at church, I cry every time we meet. And I don't even fight it, and I don't even try. I'm not afraid to be real, and it's healing. And as I've been attending recently, uh, Bible study on 
Wednesdays at Perimeter Church. Women at my table there said that my crying gave them permission to cry. And we've been just crying every week. It's been awesome. So healing. So vulnerable. Think about all the vulnerability it takes for me to open up to you here about all these issues in my life with the hope that you will hear the gospel applied to my troubles and be comforted in your own troubles. For me, vulnerability is scary. I'm anxious and scared right now <laughs> being so vulnerable with you, but when others are vulnerable with me, their message of God's goodness and sovereignty and deliverance seen by them in their messy lives help me be comforted and facilitates my healing. That's why in return I am giving my vulnerability to you to help you heal. Are you real, honest, and open with people in your life who need your vulnerability and could be encouraged and comforted by you and and by you, your openness and honesty. Number 32 on our list is purpose. Purpose is the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists or happening. Uh, one moment, let me just check on the software. It says something to me. Oh, no, we're good. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In my marriage and divorces, I saw nothing good, for sure. I questioned the purpose of the marriage, the relationship, and my whole life. And it was until my friend Tiffany sent me a text message to read the book of Esther. As she said, it was about me and my situation. I didn't read it. And then, independently from Tiffany, my biblical counselor gave me that whole book as homework. And I studied it closely with passion. And I felt such sense of purpose. Like I was equipped and qualified to be this man's wife, to be exactly where I'm at, to do exactly what I was doing, to suffer in this marriage for some good reason. Only God knows. And here's the poem I wrote about it. It's called My Husband for a Reason. God, I'm praying for my husband. Can you please renew his mind? Give him heart that's made of flesh and make him faithful, wise, and kind. God, I pray that you draw close him to disciple be of Jesus, trusting that you truly chose him to my husband be for reasons, for salvation, his I'm praying, and for healing of his wounds. At your feet, my love, I'm laying. He surprising me eludes. Bless him, Father. Give him peace. He's been suffering too long. From his past, please him release and fill his heart with joyful song. 
What about you? Do you feel driven by a strong sense of purpose? Do you believe that adversity in your life has a greater purpose, which is good according to God? Do you trust God? Trust is the next on our list, number 33. To trust is to believe in the reliability, truth, ability or strength of something or someone. I doubt God at times of struggle. But deep in my heart, I know that I trust that the Bible is God-breathed word. And I trust every little bit of it. I really, really do. And that's what actually kept me sane throughout these divorces and this bizarre marriage with Michael. By the way, have you ever watched a movie called The Case for Christ? It's a real story of li real living today people. And it is so powerful. I highly recommend it. A case for Christ. Please watch it just for the sake of your own faith. You know, my life has been really tough and I'm anxious and scared that even more adversity is coming my way. But now I'm able to relax into those feelings knowing that God is good and His plan is always perfect. And I know it from my experience with Him because He never failed me. So here's a poem I wrote, it's called, Your Plan is Always Perfect. You said your plan is perfect. Can I believe it, God? Sometimes, sometimes I feel in conflict with scope of trials so broad. But then I look around, I pay attention close, and see your grace abound in sorrow and in loss. I trust your every vow, your holy word I trust. Sometimes I wonder how your beauty comes from dust. Your plan for me to prosper, have future and the hope. Wholeheartedly I trust it and never will I stop. And that is empowering to me now and that has been empowering to me to trust God like this to just know by faith and my experience with him and I felt empowered so empowerment is next on our list number 34 empowerment is something I am stepping into again as I'm recovering from what happened to me after I said I do to Michael I dedicated to this important topic a whole entire podcast episode and it's the previous one from last week so please make sure you go and listen to the empowering women show from last week but still I want to read you this poem I wrote that's actually called empowering women you ready empowerment is a concept of persevering no matter what life offers to you at times. It's a decision to refuse fearing narcissists, abusers, and executors of other crimes. Empowerment is the antidote for violence. It's a way of saying no more from now on. 
It's the path to get you beyond survivance, to where you can thrive and finally move on. Get empowered from knowing who you are in Christ. He loves and accepts you. He made you a masterpiece. To liberate you, his life he sacrificed. He set you free so you can be from abuse released. Raise up. Speak up. Stand up for yourself. Get empowered and empower others. You are worthy of the love of Jesus himself, so take no more of this abuse nonsense. And the last but not least, by far the most important that I have been allowing myself to experience, learning how to experience, and would love for you to experience, is surrender. What does surrender mean? It means to cease resistance to an enemy or opponent and submit to their authority. Now, God is surely not our enemy, even though at times I admit we can feel as if he were. <laughs> but God is for sure our opponent, as we must choose daily to either walk in the Spirit and obey Him and His commands, or give in to our own flesh. There is always that battle. I argued with God about those divorces because they were so painful, unnecessary, from my earthly perspective, and they just felt surreal to me. I couldn't believe what happened to me and Michael in this marriage and just how bizarre everything was. I also fought God on this podcast episode. Sharing all this with you from my perspective was unnecessary. But God won. And it sure feels surreal to me that I told you everything I told you today and that I'm about to click the publish button. When you hear this episode, you know that after all, God wins and I surrender. <laughs> anyway, here's a poem I wrote to God as I've learned to give up fighting about my divorces. And this is called, I'm Surrendered to Thee. It's the... <sighs> poem I wrote, it was the second poem I ever wrote, it was just amazing to even write all of this because I had never been a poem before, this all came from God, out of the blue. I am fearfully and wonderfully made, by God Almighty, the great I am. Old things all passed away at once, and I'm a new creation in Christ. I die in my flesh and walk in the spirit. I choose kindness and humbleness. The harder the journey, the more I grow from it. You offer to me no condemnation, and you provide an escape from every temptation. I choose to lose so I can win. I'm prudent, not simple, following your written will. I go through trials and learn my lessons daily, but often stumble. I know you prune me to be more fruitful, but my life I often shumble. Please, lift this heavy burden off of me. You say your yoke is easy. I'm surrendered to thee.
Wow. That was a lot to share with you. And it's 1.30 a.m. now. And I have to be in court because I've been subpoenaed for um, jury duty in just a few hours. Which causes me a lot of anxiety. <laughs> it's been the most humbling experience and the most valuable content I've ever put out there in the universe, ever. My hope is that you found this relevant, helpful, empowering, and healing. Before we say goodbye, I want to remind you that you can help others find this podcast by posting your review. As you know, every week after I publish a new podcast episode, I also release a new meditation. This week, I will share with you my poetry instead. I'll be releasing a few poems at a time, and they will be about one to three minutes each, reflecting different feelings and emotions. And so you can just save and enjoy, download the ones that resonate most with you and you find the most helpful. Today, I have a new poem for you. So here's a poem I wrote just for you to help you take a healing action after you listen to this long podcast. This new poem is called Feelings the F Feeling the Feelings. And I wrote it a month ago on um, September 24th when I just started preparing this podcast episode to help you discover and feel your feelings. This poem ends with a promise. That promise doesn't mean that you will be pain-free in life. It does mean, though, that you will gain understanding of your pain, which will then empower you to take healing action. Are you ready? Here it is. Do you know how to feel feelings? I mean, the whole range of them, all of them, like fear, faith, joy, surprise from others' dealings, like anger, peace, responsibility, or defensiveness when people you condemn. Do you know how to feel sadness and to grieve appropriately? Like sitting down with your sad thoughts and cry, like writing heartfelt entries in your journal openly without pretending and without saying a lie. But just really putting your heart out, just putting all your emotions in the universe, just being open and vulnerable without a doubt, just being yourself, who you are, without intentional rehearse. I've learned slowly how to feel my emotions. In the past, my primary feelings were anger and rage. I've been intentional about using the experience to write devotions to help you with your own emotions to engage. Please take the time to be still and feel uncomfortable. Please make it your priority to focus your mind on the important intention of being vulnerable so you can that place of healing within yourself find. There is actually nothing much more to it. Just sit, be quiet, be still and feel. When you're feeling, though, make sure you do admit and label each emotion without pretending. Be real. If you feel joy, say, I feel joy now. If you feel sadness, say, I'm very sad. If you're crushed, 
than the experience of pain allow by saying, I am in pain. And on that in your journal reflect. You will feel odd and weird at first. It's normal. But so what? It's a skill like learning to drive a car. Keep going. Keep feeling. This process is very informal. And I promise with time, it will help you heal your every scar.